is expecting you. Yes, welcome to the very last episode of Book Two, the episode 20, The Crossroads of Destiny, the actual finale of Book Two. Guys, we made it. We made it to the end of Book Two. We made it to the end of the Earth Kingdom. How, how exciting. Today on my panel, I have the same guests from last week. So hello, Corey. Greetings. And hello, Julia. Hello. So as we did with the book one finale today, we will be talking about just the second episode, The Crossroads of Destiny. We will be doing a sort of full retrospective on the entire finale and and then in, um, in kind, a full retrospective on book two um, next week. So uh, stay tuned for that. But we have a lot of stuff to get to, so let's just dive right in with our initial thoughts. And Julia, why don't you kick things off today with your initial thoughts for this episode? I have to say, I'm not a big fan of book two as a whole, but this episode has always been very memorable to me. Um, I'm definitely a bit biased because I do like Zutara, and it's like the quintessential Zutara episode. It is absolutely not, and we will talk about that later. It, it, it kind of is, but yes, we will talk about that later. Um, so I'm a big fan of it. This is one of my favorite of the series. Okay. Corey, yourself. Um, this like always, uh, first of all, I'm the complete opposite. I love book two a lot. In fact, I love like every season of Avatar. There's no weak season and they all feel different in their own way, but this is no different. This is one of my favorite episodes of the season and I love Azula like so much. Like I always think again my favorite avatar one is from Korra but like I, I don't know like this episode almost reaffirmed that Azula is my favorite when she's done right and boy was she done right this episode and you know so much for me being happy about Iroh and uh, Zuko there there goes my hopes and dreams so yeah <laughs> so this is going to be a bit of a weird one for me because we've we've talked a fair number of times on this show um, and I even talked about it last week about episodes that I remember really well, that I remember like loving and thinking they were incredible. And then kind of going back with that critical eye and going, you know, there's a few more problems with it than maybe I initially thought. It is the exact opposite today. I remember the book two finale really well, but I always remember liking the guru episode a little bit more. And yet, Watching this today, I am stunned as to how good this episode actually is. And what's interesting is a lot of times I've noticed that the episodes I've been more keen on as I've A, gotten older, and B, kind of watched with the critical eye of the podcast, have been the sort of more, less action-heavy episodes, the ones that are a little bit more focused on the character building of, 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 of Aang and, and, and Zuko and Katara and Sokka or ones that involve big ideas. I mean, I, I, I think back to our discussion of the spirit world and Avatar Roku, the two winter solstice episodes, in which I initially loved the uh, Avatar Roku episode, which has a lot of action in it and is like really kind of a big, grand episode, and instead realized, looking back, that the spirit world, which is the more, like, a little bit less memorable, a little bit more mellow, more, or more nuanced episode, was the one I liked more. And what's interesting is I kind of expected that going into what we're watching the, the book two finale and thinking, you know, the guru, that's going to be the one I'm just going to love and think is perfect. And yeah, Crossroads is great. It's got some fun, scene, you know, some memorable scenes. It's got some good fights. But, you know, it's going to be, you know, it is what it is. 
But watching this, this is phenomenally good. And there, there are like many moments within this single episode that stand up as some of the best moments in the entire show. And there's a whole bunch of them. And I've, I've been continually touting how much I think that the book one finale, um, Siege of the North Part Two, is just an absolute pinnacle, a true, ter- a kind of a true apex of what television can be. And I'm not saying that this is, 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 is at the absolute top. But this is is far up the mountain, man. This is a really good episode. So just as the episode does, let's kind of get just kind of dive right in because because there's one thing that's also of note is there is no like 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 time wasted. Like we start, we are we are flying back into Ba Sing Se, we are picking up a, a Toph, and we are getting in, and it's like really quick. And I think it's kind of it flies in the face a little bit of what a lot of, a lot of other Tar episodes. If there can be not so much a complaint, but just kind of a, an observation is a lot of them do start relatively slow. It, it is a little bit more episodic in that way. And there's a lot of episodes that sort of they have kind of the opening scene where we establish everything that's going to happen. And kind of it's pretty like it takes a you know couple of minutes to get going. But like this one, we're like we're in it. It's fast. Yeah, they have a lot of ground to cover and they're not wasting any time. Mm hmm. Yeah. Um, and then right off the bat, we have we have a truly fantastic Azula moment with with the speech she gives to the to the Dai Li. And I'll give Corey the floor in a moment because I know he's got a lot to say about this. But I just I just think that it's it's amazing to me that they were able to that like the writers were able to write a scene like this because this is not an easy thing to write. To write an inspir a quote unquote inspirational speech is like really difficult to do because you have to write good writing. And I've always find that it's like, I, I see this as kind of a problem and something that like, say, Aaron Sorkin can do really well with kind of his speeches when he writes things in uh, West Wing or some of his things where it's like, not, you're not only writing like good dialogue for your characters, but you're literally writing something that was in theory, a written speech. And I've always thought that it's very hard to, let, to, have, to have writers do this and takes like a lot of talent. And it's incredible that they managed to like get this speech down. There's, they're like, there's not a word I would change about it. But Corey, I'm sure you want to say some things, so you have. To- so, in order for me to properly talk about this, I actually just pulled up the transcript of Azula's first speech, uh, and like I just was reading it over while you were going over your things, and like her speech is like a perfect combination of inspirational, scary, direct. She's like when she's not insane and not being in like the chaotic elements of her own mind, she is a brilliant leader and like is easily someone that is set up to be the successor to the fire King. When, whenever it's said and done, she's like such a clear monarch. She has such a, like, she has such a power that she carries with her voice. And I love it when she's completely collected, right? Like when yeah. she's not off unhinged, this is when she's at my favorite. And like, I feel like these are really rare and in between moments, but when you're in that moment, it's it's like she's Darth Vader. Like it's funny. She's like when she's crazy, she's like Palpatine. But when she's like this, she's like Darth Vader slash Tarkin. She just has like a complete air about her, and she this airs just respect and like and, yeah. And what adds to it for me is this is a very like quote unquote high risk kind of scene because this whole plot hinges on the idea that Azula was able to turn the Dai Li over to her and make them loyal to her and not the Earth Kingdom, 
in a pretty short period of time. And we'll talk about that um, a little bit later when we get kind of the end of the, of the, of the scene or the end of the episode. But without you buying that Azula could be that like motivational, that, that inspirational, that she could turn this kind of paramilitary organization into, um, you know, over to her side, without this scene, you would never believe that. You'd have no reason to believe it whatsoever. And the fact that we're able to buy it, I think, entirely hinges upon this speech. And to like kind of to go on that type of risk, I think was was it was something. And I think that they really succeeded. And like, like she said it perfectly. Like it's like a poetic but scary spike speech. It was just like such a way. It was like everything that needed to be said. And it was like, oh, I love that opening speech. Yeah, it's it is it is quite good, Julia. Any, any yeah, that? it definitely shows you how she has that mix of you know natural talent for manipulation and that kind of natural uh, authority, and also how carefully she's been groomed to assume the title of Fire Lord. And you see, really, Azula at her best and what she could be if she was able to keep that madness under control. And I think it's one of the best Azula scenes, if not the best. Yeah, I think it's, it's pro- to me, it's probably the second best, and the second one best is later in this episode. So shows you just how, how incredible it is. Um, and what's, what's also great, like, you go just from, like, one great speech to the next, and we, we go on to an Iroh, an, an Iroh scene, and... Like there's a lot in this episode that's like like very iconic Iroh, and, and we'll talk about his his scene with Aang in a minute because I, I have a lot of thoughts about that. But just a kind of more subtle one and kind of a more like calm one is is his moment with Zuko walking up to the palace. And there's just something there's incredible about seeing this man who who we've come to know now over two seasons and is we we, we have this like we've already built up this amazing respect for him. But the fact that this man who once came to this city, to burn it down, to to conquer it and 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 take it over, can walk up to the royal palace, and you can almost feel the like respect that he has, the honor that he feels that he is go, being being asked to the palace. And he, obviously, we know he's not actually getting called, but like there's there's something like so like powerful to me about a person who a is can go through the change that he's gone through in his life. But be able to have such respect for a situation that like, 20 years earlier would not have been even possible. I know, like, I know that it's it is like that is Iroh. It's not like something we shouldn't expect. But I just I want to like like just soak in the fact that this is this incredible person that we've gotten to see on in, in Iroh. And again, it's just like. It's like, this is such a depressing episode for me, as I said. Like, it was, like, too good to be true. This entire season, the smoothest they have it. But it's very sad. Until, like, Zuko rebounds at the end of book three. It's just, like, damn. He, like, theoretically, quote-unquote, joins Team Avatar. It's just, like, you know, he's still a dick. <laughs> I mean, yes. But that is, he is Zuko. Like, he, that, that is who he is. Just want Iroh to be happy, Mark. Iroh is very happy at the end of the. Yeah, but we're not. We have a long way to go until the end of the series. I'm well aware. So, so one small 
thing will kind of tie in with the last episode, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about this next week, I think. But um, I just kind of noticed that like Aang is asked about when he's flying back. But your top asked him, "Oh, did you did you complete the training?" And he's like, "Yeah, definitely did that." And it's like one of the whole points of the things he was supposed to not to let go was lying about himself and lying about what he could do. Like that was one of the chakras, and it's like, um, didn't you? You learn you're not supposed to lie about yourself. It's literally like with Zuko, what I was saying about turning over the new leaf in the last episode. That's with Aang. Like, he made a New Year's resolution with the guru and now has already forgotten about it. Yeah, that, that one. Completely that a, going back on it. Short, short resolution there. Yeah. Um, but do, do you think, because they bring this up like three times in the first five minutes about him getting warned that if you leave, you don't complete your training, it's dangerous. Like, I don't think Aang truly suffers those consequences. Like, he always is at risk of getting hurt in the Avatar state. That doesn't change. But I don't think Aang really ever suffers consequences from ending his training early. I mean, you could make an argument. And actually, let's hold off on that because that's that's a – there's a there's a longer conversation there, and I want to I want to talk about that when we get to the very end because it's it's kind of a the whole I want to tie like the entire ending scene together. Um, but to just kind of stick on Iroh for a minute because we're that's kind of where we were. Um, you know, just a badass move there, that fire breath breath from Iroh, and just the the calm moment of him like sipping the tea and like you ever hear the story of how I became the dragon of the West, and then you know he breathes the fire like that was that is sick. Yeah. I- yeah. I feel like with Iroh's just kind of calm, sweet nature and how he acts around Zuko, you tend to forget that he's just such an incredibly powerful firebender and how mm-hmm. he got to the position of honor and power. Besides, obviously, being the original heir to the throne, he really earned his place as general. He was an incredibly talented uh, firebender. And you forget that, but then you have moments like that where you're just in awe of him. And I think it's a yeah. really great moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I also, I really like the the way they play Zuko and Azula here at the beginning of this episode. This being kind of Azula's big manipulative episode, there, there's something I think really nice about the fact that she just kind of stands there calmly and is like, no, I'm not going to fight you. I'm going to let you just kind of let the daily take him in into the crystals because, like, obviously she could, especially in her mind, pretty easily like, beat him and whatever. But like, she she is playing a longer game here, and I, I like that we just like throughout this entire episode is just like you can see Azula is playing the long game, pl- plotting this out slowly but sure. And again, it makes you think that if she just wasn't so unhinged and had so many like personal flaws she would be such a spiritual successor to rule the fire nation and like way better than her dad and like you know nobody likes the fire lord right now like well i think does no but i'm not i'm not saying that in the show's context i'm saying it like he's just he's just a generic but i actually but i but i would contend that if zula was fire lord it would be it wouldn't work as well that it, it, Azula needs to be clawing at power for it to be, for her character to work the way it does. I don't she's, think she's, no, but I don't think she ever claws. She's handed it to her on a silver platter. 
But she, this is, she plots this thing out. Like she doesn't walk into Ba Sing Se and is like, Hey guys, I'm fine. I'm, I'm here. Like she has to work hard to achieve this. I think she, she worked that this episode in itself is her plotting out this coup. Yeah. But I, but she's a prodigy. So she, I understand that she's a prodigy. My, My point though, is the fact that if, if she was just like all powerful sitting on the throne in the Fire Nation the whole time. She wouldn't be, she couldn't be. Oh, yes, absolutely. And that's why I like Azula, because she does things, you know? Well, of course, yeah. (laughs) I think this is her element, the kind of infiltrative, uh, small-scale, just uh, working, getting her hands dirty. So she, I mean, you would have some interesting dynamics with her on the phone, if phone, throne, if she wasn't so unhinged. Because there still is a lot of political mechanisms that they could have dived into, theoretically, and you could have seen her manipulating people from that position of power. But I think Azula really flourishes when she's just on her own and has to rely just on the strength of her own wit and intelligence and manipulation. Yeah, and I think that you... you, But I also think that like her, the way she is, isn't built as well for... The throne, because I think that, like, I, to me, I think one of Azula's defining characteristics is the fact that she is she is hungry for power. She is hungry to sort of. She was not the heir. She is trying to, like, ju- on some level, both Zuko and Azula are at this moment trying to achieve the same thing. Both are trying to achieve a point where their father makes them the heir. And I think that there's something like it, it's important to Azula's character to be like. She is actually working hard to gain the power that she is. She's not Zuko in kind of the when I, I say clawing, like yeah, Zuko is kind of more. It's like you know she he's like scraping and trying to gain anything he can. Azula is taking much more sort of grand strides and and, and kind of stepping over thresholds. But they're still work. They're still like they still aren't haven't achieved their goal. They're still trying to achieve something. Did we um talk about? how badass Iroh was when she confronted Azula? What, when he breathes fire? Yes. Yes, we did. Oh. But that's a good transition, because let's talk about another badass Iroh moment. And this is something that I think just kind of, to me, highlights Iroh here, is that if any other character would walk into a scene and just be like, oh yeah, I got a Dylee agent tied up outside, I wouldn't believe it for a second, because the Dylee have been built up as like, they're really good at this stuff. But because it's Iroh, I'm like, yeah, Totally makes sense. I overpowered like, him and tied him up. And, yep, oh, of course. No, yeah, it, it, it makes total sense. And it's like, to me, that is a great example of of when you have a great character is that they can do something that's slightly over the top in terms of power. And I don't bat an eye because they have done a, enough of a job to make me believe that when Iroh puts his mind to it and really tries to, to do something, he's going to just do it. Oh, yeah, he's probably one of the, you know, overpowered firebenders, but he's a pacifist, like, so you never really truly see... I wouldn't quite call him a pacifist. He is someone that does avoid... Yeah, but I think that he's... I I, I wouldn't... To me, he's more like he's into balance and creating a world that is... that looks right. Like, he's willing to use violence when it's necessary. He might not love it. He might not be like, he's not 
fire. You know, he's not gung ho for it, but I, I wouldn't exactly call him a pat. Like to me, he's a little bit. It's a little different. Like he's not a vegetarian. Yeah, no, of course not. But I, again, he's someone that doesn't like to fight. And obviously, when his back is cornered, and you know he has to do it, he does. Mm-hmm. But I always think there is an element of him that holds back and really just fights as a means to like protect. Himself. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't go full tilt unless, in he, other than situations where he absolutely has to. And even when he breathes fire, he does it more as like a, a smoke and mirrors like way to escape. It's not as a way to like hurt anyone. Yeah, I mean, the only time he goes like true, I think, full full tilt is in the in the book one finale after Zhao tries to kill the fit. Yes. And then he just goes off. Yeah. I don't um, think that makes him a pacifist because I think he personally doesn't like to resort to violence. Um, but he doesn't necessarily dis- disapprove of violence as a method for accomplishing things. Like you never really see him, uh, like, he, he doesn't try to hold Zuko back in that respect, and I think if he was really a pacifist, he would be more for pushing for the diplomatic options instead of, you know, kind of helping Zuko with his more violent tendencies. Yeah, and he at the end of the day, he was a general. Yeah. And like, he doesn't, he might look back on the things that he had to do from the Fire Nation's perspective as, like, it is, that was, like, that was wrong, but I don't. I don't get the sense from him that he's like, that he's like, like, like not like guilty about the violence that he's had to inflict. Like to me, I, I think that like, I understand what you're saying, Corey. I just, I don't think pacifism is precisely the way I describe it. And let's just, let's just stick on Iroh here. Cause I want to, I want to take a minute to kind of talk about what, I mean, we talk about what a perfect scene is and the scene of Iroh and Aang walking through that cave is, I don't, there's nothing really to say other than it's perfect. The lighting is perfect. The, the way the two of them move and interact with each other physically looks incredible. The advice that Iroh is giving is it's so real. It's not like, it's not stupid and cliche. I mean, yeah, he has the, the, the sort of like a dark tunnel line, but like there's something really true about it. He doesn't like have the say he has the answer. Like he admits, like, I don't have the answer. I don't know what's gonna happen, but you need to think in a way that's positive and you need to do what's best, like having love in your life. There's just there's so much about it to me that is that is incredible. And you tie it all together with the fact that Iroh is someone who's explaining to Ang that he is he is smart for choosing happiness and love. When you think about where Iroh has been, like He's lost his son. I think it's safe to assume that whoever he was married to is either gone or is not still alive. I, I, that's probably a reasonable assumption that the mother of, of, of his child is, is gone. Like, what does he have in his life in terms of, like, love is like Zuko, who, other than the last, like, couple of quote-unquote minutes of screen time, has not been particularly, like, nice to him. And to see someone like that be able to vocalize to Aang about the power of love is just like it's is there's something like truly heartbreaking there. And it's it's incredible. I think it's one of the more poignant scenes of 
the whole series. It's definitely something that stuck with me because, you know, Iroh is introduced to us, yes, as kind of the comic relief villain, but still, uh, when it comes down to it, being on the opposing side of Aang, at least when you watch the first episode. So I think it's a really great moment to have the two of them working towards the same goal and having him just lecture Aang on life advice. And uh, as cliche as it is, I do really enjoy the dark tunnel line. I think that line stuck with me uh, Mm -hmm. more than anything else uh, in that scene. But uh, I agree, the coloring and the visuals uh, just is kind of the peak of what animation can be and what they can do with that medium. And just the fact that it's it's a brilliantly animated scene, but it's not big. It's not a big battle. And yes, there is a big battle in this episode, and it is amazing. But the fact that they were... It's clear to me they put so much love and attention and detail into two people walking in a cave. That's incredible. Like, that is not something that every show does. There are plenty of shows that kind of would take a scene like this and say, you know, it's not that big a deal. It doesn't need to be particularly cinematic. It can kind of, it can just be what it is. But no, they just make it incredible. So with that, we are going to take a quick break to talk about some other stuff, but um, hold it right there. And we are back. So let's talk about one of the major climaxes of this episode and the made showdown between Azula and Longfang. And I want to let you guys go first because I've kind of kind of taken the lead and given my thoughts on a bunch of this stuff. So I want you guys to, to, to talk to me about this scene. So Corey, why don't you go ahead? So, well, the long the Longfang scene. Yeah, the, 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 the final showdown. It's, like, in terms of choreographed fights with literally all of the stakes that are on in this, this let alone episode, but the entire season, it's, it's like, I know we all use the word a lot, like, we use the word perfect a lot, but, like, I can't think of one way I would want to change anything in this scene it just has the perfect amount of tension and action and, and just brilliant ways of bending. It's just like I, I just don't know Wait, to where. I think we're in the I think we're in the wrong place. I'm talking about the the, the Azula and Long Fang in the throne room. Oh, oh, like you mean when they were talking? When we're not we're, we're not at the, the big fight yet. We're talking about the the, oh. the, the talking. Well, the the thing with Azula is like she knows the perfect way to manipulate. And like, as you said, I think you said it earlier, she always is two steps ahead. So just the way she like, just the way she like is able to word her argument to Longfang and like have the perfect amount of like, I guess threat, but at the same time, like convincing her that like what power is, it's just like such, she's such a good, 
I think I, I mentioned it in my earlier speech. She just knows exactly how to play the field. And again, I, I just, I, I think this is my favorite episode of Fazula in it, by far and away. Mm-hmm. I think one of the really great things that this scene accomplishes is the tension of which one of them will come out on top. Because really, neither one of them are good people or protagonists that you would necessarily be rooting for. And you're not really sure which which person to root for because Azula is the more fun one, but uh, Long Fang, you know, would maybe be better for the Earth Kingdom. And I think it's a very brilliantly executed scene because of all the buildup that had to go into making this scene work in all the previous episodes. And you could see all the time it took to reach a point where you could have this climax. And I think it's mm-hmm. very well done. Yeah. So so the question that I want to pose to the two of you, and I mentioned it briefly at the, the, the top of this episode, but how do you guys feel about the just the believability of Azula turning the Dai Li kind of as quickly as she does? Well, I've always seen the Dai Li as very shifty and opportunistic and not necessarily uh, having a comp- an allegiance to the Earth Kingdom. I think they're almost more like mercenaries in that they just kind of, they're following the tide, whatever seems best for them. And Azula is very, very good at what she does. So I've never really had a problem with this. Mm-hmm. I, I think the Dai Li only truly exist to keep order and pretty much keep... You know who created the Dai Li? Who created the Dai Li? Uh, Kiyoshi. Correct. I mean, I know my avatar lore. Just making sure. But, again, I think they exist to protect the Earth Kingdom's interest and, like, keep individuals in line. So it doesn't matter who is at the head of the throne and who's the king or the queen... It's really just matters that the people are in line, the the water's running, like the whole, you know, generic thing. And it's irrelevant if it's Longfang or Azula. They are loyal to whoever is in the greatest interest of the Earth Kingdom. But wait, if that's the case, then how in the world are they, could they possibly be loyal to Azula, who is against the interest of the Earth Kingdom? Longfang, in my opinion, is worse. Except... I'm not saying Longfang is better or worse. I'm saying is if your if your argument here is that Dai Li is our, I mean to to just go with game, our Varus, the uh, who do you serve, the realm, then there's no way they could be manipulated by by Azula. They would do what's best for the Earth Kingdom and be like, well, both of you can go screw yourselves. I disagree. I think Azula offers to the Dai Li and then the Earth Kingdom as a whole. Abbasing say a form of peace of mind, especially if the earth, if they're a puppet ruled by the fire nation, it's not bad for them. In my opinion, if anything, it's better for them, except it's really not. I mean, I don't, they wouldn't I be don't at war that at all. If they're under the, control I mean, I don't, of the I fire don't kingdom. Gradually. If you're, if you're, if they're under the control of the fire nation, then they're not at war anymore, and it's a lot more stable, I think. Yep, and they haven't exactly. seen Azula's crazy side at that point. She seems like a very calm-headed ruler, uh, very competent. Uh, I, could... I just don't, I don't see what in the Dai Li 
we're seeing like what where in the daily you're seeing that they're like abhorring the fact that they're at war and are looking for like just a, a swift end to the war no matter what it is even if it's a law like it's everywhere they, they 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 don't even acknowledge there's a war to begin with exactly because things are going well enough in bossing say that it doesn't matter but now that they, they don't even need that as a, a facade anymore if 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 azula is being the shadow puppet master it, it's actually better for them i guess i don't know i feel like if that point why didn't they just appoint one of themselves shadow puppet master because it's long fang he's like very yeah. easy to well then get rid of long fang and get somebody new like i don't well, i'm just i don't know i don't well i don't, I don't think anyone in the Dai Li who are the foot soldiers are really natural leaders per se they are just looking for someone who will kind of uh take the throne i don't think any of them really have the ability to step up and lead well, them themselves here, here's a thought that i just, I just had I, this is completely completely off the off my head just now we know that the Dai Li are brainwashing people is there a possibility that long fang has Maybe not quote on, full on brainwash, but it's like literally tried to create a system where they are they are one hundred percent loyal to the leader of the Dai Li, and in that case, him. And that because Azula had been quote unquote placed in charge, they have like there's almost they're almost like programmed in their minds to be loyal. Like I wonder if that's the case. That's that if they're like that they're like loyal to a leader to a fault. That's an interesting thought. I can't say there's anything in the episode that would lead me to believe that wasn't the case. It's kind of just because if you think about it, it's believable. We know they're not like they choose not to be loyal to the Earth King. Like we know that from the previous episodes that like the Earth, the Long Fang has been thrown in prison. The Dai Li um, say that they are still loyal to Long Fang and that they are. And they are willing, we know that in this coup, they are willing to take out the top five generals in the government. So we know that they are 100% loyal to the cause of, sort of to the will of Long Fang. Long Fang says, do what Azula does, and they all do it without question. Like, none of them say, like, why are we taking out generals? Why are we breaking with the Earth King? Why don't we just break Long Fang out of prison and do something about it? Like they are, like these are. This is really drastic action, and I feel like it actually would make a lot of sense if Long Fang has specifically picked people to be in the Dai Li who are like on some level easy to manipulate, so that they have become they are. He is able to control them one hundred percent without question. But then that turns against him when Azula comes in and is more even better than him at playing this game. And they all end up becoming loyal to her because they are almost primed to be manipulated. You are giving Long Feng way too much credit. But you have to. The guy took over a country. Yeah, but I, I think he's pretty competent as a manipulator and a leader. He was basically leading the Earth Kingdom. He has an entire city under his, his complete control. And we hear in this episode that... He was quote unquote born with nothing that he had to to gain power himself. Like I, you can't Long Fang is not like a stooge that Azula comes in and is like, yeah, you're bad at this. I'm better. Like 
there is he's a he is good well, at this she, game. she is she literally she's, says like you weren't even a player in this game but yes, well that's just yes, because azula's bragging and he's taunting there but yeah. like obviously azula is better no one's denying that but you it's not like long fang was nothing long fang was really good azula was better I mean, I, I I think he's charismatic, but I think by the time we make it to where we are in the show, he's very complacent, and you know he he's lazy. Like, I think he's gotten lazy at this point. I I am sorry, I couldn't disagree with you more here. Like he he gets into the city and like he does all of this stuff with Ang to like try and like he captures Ang's bison just to try and make have some degree of leverage over Ang. Like that's. Like literally what he's doing is like trying to gain leverage over the avatar because for 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 someone like Long Fang, he just wants to be that person that has leverage over everybody, who has who has control over everybody. And he yes, he underestimates Azula, but I don't think that that's like him getting complacent. I think that he looked at this situation and said, I am in complete control and didn't realize that because he was in a cell and not essentially out being the one doing the manipulation, Azula gained like got the drop on him. Uh, I, I mean, I I mean, I, I think he his obviously there's there's no doubt his like overconfidence led to his like overall downfall where he, where it stands right now, especially through Azula. But he the way he controls people after making it to the top shows that he is very fearful of losing everything he has. And when you're in a position like that, where you're constantly doing all these things that I don't think it's true power. I think it's just like anyone can use fear and like brainwashing as a form of staying in power. Like I'm not really questioning how he got to where he is, but like the entire system of bossing say is like completely corrupt. And like, it's like game of Thrones ask where like, there's a lot of ways to climb this ladder. Chaos is a ladder. But, the yeah. thing, but it's not chaos. Like, it's the opposite of chaos. It's a control. Everything about it is controlled. No, no, I I do agree with you on that, Mark. I was just quoting Littlefinger. Yeah. No, I know, <laughs> I, I know, I know. But, <laughs> like, I don't. I, I feel like I yes, I I'm on some level making a similar argument to you that Long Fang sowed the seeds of this um of this coup by creating a. This this the dial or not creating the dialy because the dialy already exists, but by pushing the dialy out of loyalty to the Earth King and by extension out of loyalty to the Earth Kingdom, they were loyal to him and not to and and not to the Earth King. And I think that that like that to me is the is fundamental what it is here. And the more I think about it, the more I think that like this is actually the way what it's trying to do is that the the dialy should and were originally loyal to the Earth Kingdom and loyal to keeping the peace of the Earth King. And the best interest of the Earth Kingdom, as you said, and Long Fang changed that. He made the Dai Li loyal to him, doing things against the will of the Earth King, or at least against the knowledge of, because the Earth King was was the Earth King was made completely powerless, and controlling a city that, like, in ways that are pretty kind of bad, and like doing all the brainwashing stuff. And I think that on some level, he primed. The city he primed this the, the the bureaucracy of Ba Sing Se to be easy because he was making it easily controlled by one man controlled by himself he made it easy for that one person to change 
from him to Azula, and then the whole system comes down. And if instead you had a much more sort of robust bureaucracy with people with their the best interest of the Earth Kingdom at heart, well, then they would have never gone over to Azula. They would have never gone over to her. I wasn't expecting this one to turn into the big argument. I mean, it's 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 complicated because there's a lot I mean, of ways. I, on one of I guess we, we all agree that we're all all of us believe that Azula should have been able to do this. Like that was the initial yeah. question. Yes, that's that goes without saying. It's just I I am on the the boat on I'm on like the side of the field that says Long Fang. It's a, you're right. I, I maybe I gave him a little too much credit. He got where he is under very good circumstances. But like the way like I'm complimenting Azula this entire episode is like the opposite of the way I view Longfang, where I I truly believe that Azula is able to take anything she wants. Just she so says. you know, I to me I am complimenting Azula more that in my opinion she beat the best. But I just don't think he's I think a lot of people in power are able to keep power under these circumstances. He's able to keep power, but when truly challenged, AKA the way Azula truly challenged it, you see their true underbelly. I, I think I argue that not only Azula could do what just happened. A lot of things could have un. there's like a house of cards. I, I consider it like a house of cards. I was just waiting to fall. I mean, I guess on that level, I think we kind of agree. I just think that we're just kind of debating over long fans competence and, I don't want to, we shouldn't, let's not talk totally in circles here. So let's, let's go from one fight to probably the biggest fight that we're going to have. And let's just kind of put all of the whole crystal cave scene in, into one. So I'm going to let you two give your case for Zutara here. And then I will do a fantastic job of knocking it down and explaining why you're wrong. So go ahead. Have fun. Whoever wants to go, I don't care. Corey, would you like to start? Go ahead, Julia. Okay. So. What I love about this scene is the idea of uh, Zuko feeling that the Fire Nation took something from him the way Katara's mother was taken from him, from her. And I think the two of them connecting over that shared loss and kind of bridging the divide that was between them is what really sparked it for me. I don't I'm not interested in the whole them arguing and the whole belligerent sexual tension type of thing. That's I not... I read my notes. I, ha- I, have, I have your notes up. I, I'm quoting you. Um, I don't have... Uh, I, that's not what interests me. I think it's the idea of the two of them having a very similar background and sharing the same kind of source of main pain and loss in their life. And having that connection, having someone who understands that, and I think that's what makes the relationship appealing to me. Corey? Uh, I thought that might cut out. Uh, as you know, I totally ship Zuko and Katara. Um, and this is one of the many episodes that um, I believe set this all up. I think... They are absolutely perfect for each other for the exact reasons Julia just went by. They have a similar, especially they have a similar relationship with their mothers, which we both know. 
I believe that Katara, being a waterbender, could have used symbolic waterbending healing techniques to heal Zuko's broken heart. Aww. Um, I hate you so much for that line. <laughs> like, like, it's so much. And I still, to this day, don't get Aang and Katara's relationship, other than Aang had We're a schoolboy. We're not talking about Katara here. We are not talking about Aang and But we, ha- like, we have no choice, no, because we know how the not, series ends. It's not binary, though. It, just because you like Katang doesn't mean that you have to... Like, there, there, these doesn't need to be binary. We're not... This isn't a Katang is better than, than Zutara thing here. There will be enough of those, and I will talk about that at a later time. This well, is... I'm sorry. Over, what were your notes that she read off? How did you word this? There belligerent was sexual tension. Forced, forced sexual tension? Belligerent. No, belligerent. I, belligerent, there it is. Belligerent sexual tension is stupid. There, you are completely wrong. That's not belligerent sexual tension. Fine, let's just say there's no... I think it's just two people having a moment. Nothing sexual, if you want to put it at that. So, let's... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain why the two of you are wrong. And the two of you are completely wrong. So, first, just to kind of explain what I meant by that, when I said belligerent sexual tension, I'm, I'm referring more to the, the beginning of it when they're screaming at each other. And it's that's just how much I abhor the, the trope of like, oh, let's ship them because they scream at each other a lot and they hate each other. So that means they actually must love each other. And I hate that. I think it's so like unbelievably untrue to reality. And it's like something that only happens in, in movies. And that's it. I really like this scene. I think that there is a really great moment between Katara and Zuko here of Zuko of Katara realized on some level that Zuko is actually a person. And for so long, she has looked at him as not just the enemy, but as kind of a stand-in for the entirety of the Fire Nation, a stand-in for, as she even says in the episode, the, the face of the enemy, her face, or his face. And I think that, that, to me, I really like this scene because of the fact that you can see two people who are on opposite sides beginning to realize that they have something in common. But that doesn't mean that they're going to be romantically involved in one another. And I think that the the, the push here to force something between Katara and Zuko, the idea that, oh yeah, see, Katara was nice to Zuko, yup, that they're together, is to me, like, one, I like more relationships between people where two people can have a deep connection who are a man and a woman or a boy and a girl and are not in a sexual relationship because that's reality. Reality is men and women can be friends and can have truly deep friendships. And I read from this scene entirely, not even friendship, but like just a softening of maybe we're not enemies. Maybe we don't have to hate each other. And then, you know, not so much later on because of, of the end of the episode. I don't see anything in the way the two of them are talking to one another that is indicative of the way two people talk as they move towards a romantic relationship. Instead, you just have Katara realizing that, yeah, Zuko is a person and I should treat him with the same degree of compassion that I treat all people with because I am a good person because Katara is a good person who feels who, who feels the need to care for people around her when they are 
when they are in trouble, when they are having a difficult time. And I just don't, nothing to me about this scene seems even a little bit romantic. And like, it it's always felt to me like, well, this is one of the few moments where Zuko and, and Katara are alone together. Therefore, if you ship them, here's your moment. They were alone together. And it's like, I don't, I just don't read anything from this that, that is in that sense. See, for she me... Off, she offered... Yeah. Oh, just for me, it wasn't they're alone together. This is a romantic moment. This was the moment where I saw the connection and started to start to ship them. And I think the reason why they are good for each other is because uh, Katara does have that compassion, compassion. And I think Zuko really needs that. I think he needs someone who can be both understanding, but also at the same time not take any of his shit. Um, so she doesn't allow him no, too much pull. I think she needs someone who will take his shit. I, I, I think that they would fight, like, so much to a point that would be completely unhealthy. See, I disagree. No. I think maybe in the at first they would fight, but not to the degree it would be unhealthy. And I think... At certain at a certain point, someone needs to say, Zuko, that's enough. Because I think Zuko is the type of person to take advantage of compassion if it's just offered freely and freely and freely because he doesn't really know people's boundaries and he doesn't know when he's asking too much of someone. And I think as opposed to Iroh... Iroh. Yeah, as opposed to Iroh, Katara would be like, that's enough just because you had a traumatic past doesn't mean you can treat me like that. And I think that will push Zuko to grow as a person. I mean, that's fine. But I think that that is, to me, that is going to be their relationship, regardless of whether they're together romantically. I think that like, I truly understand the the friendship that can come from Katara and Zuko. And, I, and I'm not like, I'm not in this like, oh, they, they just actually hate each other. But to me, there, there is a that is the difference. The crux of the difference is I don't, I don't see any point where they grow from more to like where they're actually getting past the friendship point. And I think that they're like to me that doesn't cheapen their relationship. It doesn't mean that they they can't truly care about one another. It's just that I don't, I don't think it's past that point to the level of romance. And that's and and I and I just I what gets to me is I just feel like on like in media it's there's way too much of the idea that there are two options either you're together or you have no relationship whatsoever like there's no in between and I feel like there is something great about a, just a friendship between these two people see that's how I feel about catting and I think what that comes down to is whether you see chemistry between them as to whether it should remain a close friendship or become romantic. Because I think either... Yeah, but the guitar is so perfect for Aang that it doesn't... Like, oh my god. I, I disagree. But again, this isn't a... This Hardcore wasn't going to be disagree. a cat Aang. This isn't a cat Aang conversation. I don't want to... I don't want to, like, get bogged down into a full just shipping argument because that'll go on for living. Those are always so productive and always change other people's opinions. I mean... Yes, but I will make Lindsay cry next series. Don't worry. <laughs> Great. That's that's the plan. Um, um, 
we're not ever going to agree on this. So I think we, I think that was a good discussion though. Is there anything you guys want to add before I, we move on to the, to the end? Yes, but we'll argue in circles. So no, just that I didn't see that as being the start of something romantic, more just opening the path that it could one day become. Not that I saw anything romantic between them in that scene. Yeah, it just more that there was a potential for it. In that case, we can agree. Yeah. Um. All right. So now let's let's move from 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 one relationship to to another moment of of people tugging at Zuko's heartstrings and the the two the devil and the angel on on Zuko's shoulder that is Azula trying to get him to join her and Iroh finally laying out. It's time for you to choose good. And Corey, why don't you why don't you have a moment to, to talk about the heartbreak here? Now, let me ask first, is this Star Wars throne room in Return of the Jedi? No. No. No, it's not. No. No, not at all. Why? Because I kind of view it very similar to it. Because Vader and Luke have no Azu- established relationship before the throne room they've met each other they've spent a total of like 10 minutes with each other but also the throne room scene is a is two people on the bad side saying join us this one is a good person and a bad person fighting over the person like there's no No, i i vader Vader, i I mean it, it ends differently but i'm talking about vader being zuko Luke being Iroh and Palpatine being Azula. But it it doesn't work because no. Zuko in this scene is the one going through the the conflict. He's not trying to um convince Iroh to be bad, you know, uh, and Azula's not trying to convince Iroh. Uh There's also sure. something very very fundamentally different about Iroh. Iroh cannot be Luke. Because fundamentally speaking, the throne room scene only work or work is on level of the his son. This is Vader's child, who they have never really talked before, trying to do something. Iroh and Zuko have had a really long relationship, and on top of that, Iroh is Zuko's senior. Iroh is Zuko's mentor. It's not. It's no, I don't, I don't think it's, it's the same at all. Okay. So that, yeah, that was my question. So let, let me just get to my, my thoughts on the scene. I love the fact that Iroh sounds more panicked and I'd say there's more bite in his voice than Azula. Azula is always calm, collected. He's like, I'm giving you, I'm giving you the choice to redeem yourself right now. And Iroh is, sounds more desperate when he says like, no, what she he offers you is not redemption. Like it's not a type like of redemption. Starting with the Palpatine voice for that. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm trying I'm, to put. I'm trying to put the desperation in Iroh's voice. I know voice. what you're trying to do there, but you started with Palpatine. I wasn't trying. Right that was not my intention. Sorry, like no. <laughs> so no. like, I love that because Iroh deep down knows how much potential Zuko has turned back to where he was at the beginning of season one and way before that. And I see Iroh and all the work he's put in and like the fact that we're at this turning point last episode, even where he was at like Zen 
just making tea and being happy. Iroh sees all this flash right before his eyes, while Azula, in the end, doesn't have anything to lose. If if, I, if Zuko makes the decision mm. to stick with Iroh... We'll talk about that in a minute. I don't, I don't agree with that, but yeah. We'll talk about but that. as you said earlier on, this is all Iroh has left, is Zuko, which is why I think they... He has this desperation and like bite in his voice, and I, I, I again, I, I use the word seventeen times. It's perfectly done, and it has the right, the perfect amount of tension. And first viewing, you'll be on the edge of your seat. Literally, this can go either way on your first viewing. There is no hint what Zuko's choice is going to be. You wouldn't be surprised if he sided with Iroh. You wouldn't be surprised if he sided with Azula, and. This is the beginning of the biggest heartbreak. Well, this is the biggest heartbreak, I'd argue, in Avatar The Last Airbender. See, so, I... Okay, I, enjoy it. I disagree with you on Iroh's uh, motivation for his desperation. I don't think the reason behind it is so much that he's afraid of being left alone. I think it's more concern for Zuko because he knows Zuko is susceptible and he knows this isn't what's best for him. I think it comes from a very selfless and not a selfish desire. To see I, Zuko I happy. started it too. I think it's a little from column A and a little from column B. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, as much as I love Ember Island players, I can't take this scene seriously because of it. I just think about <laughs> the play. I hate you, uncle. You smell. Yeah. That's that that episode, man. We'll get there. Get yeah. There. Um. So so the question, I think that I want to talk about, and Corey, you kind of re- touched on it briefly. So so we, it's a good transition. How do you guys feel about the handling of the foreshadowing of Zuko? Because I think, I think they lay it on somewhat thick that he is going to to turn good here, and I think that. It, it it did feel to me like watching it now and, and watching the last couple episodes as well that they really I it feels to me like they made a pretty conscious effort into getting the viewers to feel like this is the moment Zuko is finally going to turn only to snatch that away from you. And I'm a little bit. Oh, Mark, wary. you just you just I'm sorry to cut you off, but you yeah. just made me realize what I think this scene is more like if we're comparing it to Star Wars terms. All right, fine. The Last Jedi. I was going to say that. Rey, this, that, that Kylo. Scene, yeah. Right? No, that's but I hate Raylo. Like. That's fair, but that means that Ray and Kylo is like this, not that this is like that. No, sure, but I, I knew there was something Star Wars, and I, I, I mean, obviously I immediately go to the Return of the Jedi, but now that like I'm thinking about it, it's Ray Kylo scene that this yes, feels like. Yes, that's, a, that's a, a much more... Yeah, I would agree uh, with that. But that, right, that continue. Scene is, so, I I do feel like, and, and maybe this is this is the thoughts from Aunt Wu Glasses, where, like, we know that Zuko is eventually going to turn. So, all we kind of, like, you pick up on the foreshadowing a lot. There might just be a little, a little, taint, a little tinge to me that says... Did they go just a tad overboard trying to have this big moment of Zuko going against what you expect? Is it is it, is it possible they go maybe half a percent too far? No. No. Okay. <laughs> I think it's good. That's fine. I mean, I I don't I don't even know if I believe that. I'm just I just want to to task. I think, as I said, on first viewing, if you've never seen the show before. 
and don't know how it's going to end, you were probably at the edge of your seat. And plus, yeah. by laying well, it on thick, mm-hmm. it means when Zuko does choose, you know, the wrong, quote unquote, wrong option when he goes and joins uh, his sister, all of those scenes in book three, you know there's a potential for him to turn and you want it more because you were so close to getting that. And it adds mm-hmm. tension. It sets up for later tension. Yeah. So speaking of, of being on the edge of your seat, let's let's just get into this into this finale. And you know, there's a billion things that we can talk about this this fight, but a couple of key things that I wanna wanna jump in on. So right at the start, we see Azula kind of jumping in and um, Katara and Aang going after her. And there's a a, a moment. It, it's brief, but you can just barely see a little bit of fear in Azula's eyes. That's like, am I, I, do I have to fight both these guys at once? And am I maybe not cut out for that? Did you guys catch that? No. no. I, I mean, I think Azula over, not overestimates, but she thinks she's as good as she is. There's, there's just a, a, a brief moment you can, she's, when she's standing up on that. I that think it's more, no, it's more of an ego thing because that would mean like she like theoretically lost the war were like war of words to try to like you know no this I, is I, before zuko comes in this is uh, like just this is literally she like jumps in she's up on this like pillar ang does the earth bending move to kind of push her off of it as as um katara does some kind of water attack and there's just a moment where you can see in her eyes like wait a minute but she also knows she has the daily so if anything i think she's more Maybe. feigning a fear mm-hmm. to try to get them overconfident. Mm-hmm. Yeah. However, when you look at overconfidence, you know, watching this fight, Katara kind of is beating Azula at multiple moments during this fight. Like there are multiple times where they are fighting one-on-one and Katara's like definitely more than holding her own. Like it looks to me like she has an advantage. And at the end of the day, she does end up winning the fight in the finale. And obviously Azula's crazy, but it's also during the comment. So it comments. So it's almost like Azula's crazy, but she's also supercharged. So you can kind of maybe have those two things cancel out. Like I know we talk as much about how amazing a bender Azula is. And, and we, we've talked a lot about with Toph last week with the metal bending, but just to give Katara a, little, a moment here, like she kind of is awesome in this. Well, that's why Katara is a badass. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I do. Into that. I, I do agree. I do but agree. Talk about um, reality. Go ahead. You no, know, I do agree. Um, she is definitely kind of coming into her own as a waterbending master, and I think it's a great moment seeing where she started and how far she's come because Azula has been groomed as a bender her entire life, mm-hmm. whereas. Katara, what had a few had a week of formal instruction, and she. I think it's more than a week, but yeah. However long they were at the Northern Water Tribe, um, and uh, I think she's really. I don't think if the two of them had been left alone at that point, Katara would have won. But she's definitely giving Azula her her money's worth. Like she's not giving up easy and I think 
she uh, is more evenly matched than maybe Azula thinks they are They are at the start of the fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you like how waterbending can be used as a way to stop lightning attacks? What do you mean? I feel Doesn't, like it would just conduct the electricity. I feel like it would vaporize the water and still connect. I mean, what... What, um... Didn't she use Waterbender to no. block only, some of... Only when she uses fire. I mean, she's never with lightning. I, I want to rewatch the episode, because I remember seeing it and wanting to comment on it while we talked about I this. I think there might be a moment where she does it, but it's before the lightning comes out. Like, she gets Azula's arm with the water before she can generate uh, any lightning. Which, okay. like, that essentially stops the attack. Sure. I don't... Sure. I don't... I mean, look, I don't know if they're going with, like, the anime Pokemon logic of like all water conducts electricity when technically fresh water doesn't actually conduct electricity. You actually need ionized water for it to work. So on some level that's not necessarily true, but no, I don't, I don't think that that actually happens to the point here. I'm just, I just think that like, it's, it's like you, there's, there's a lot that happens in the episode. And I just think it's like low key, like Katara, really takes it to Azula and a few of the Daily agents here. There's that moment where she, like, has Azula kind of, like, caught in the water, and then it's only reason she gets out is because Zuko comes in and, like, you know, breaks the, the water chain with his fire. Like, Azula, like, the, or Katara does really well, and Aang is awful in this fight. Like, Aang is bad. I think Aang is bad because he's self-conscious about not completing his training. That's what I wanted to ask. Do you think that he's, like, actually... Like, being affected here. Because you would agree that he is not good in this fight. Yeah, I think he's very off-balanced in this fight and very much, you know, not really on his game. And I think the it really affected him. And he's kind of distracted is the so, impression so, I get. So so let me ask a question related to that, especially to you, Corey. Because you, you were the one who said, like, you thought that there was a problem, that there was no quote-unquote consequences. Is there a possibility that by Aang not opening all the chakras, he is in fact actually unbalanced and like it has zapped some of his power from him and that the, that going through the training and leaving early has made him weaker in this fight? It's certainly a possibility, um, but I think it's more mental. I think these are meant because he clearly was ups- like worried about it when he was originally asked, hey, so did you complete your training with the guru? And he was like, oh, yeah, haha. And I think he always had this in the back of his mind. So I wouldn't be surprised if either theory is correct, whether it's really because he didn't complete his training and he got his power zap, or if it's all mental blocks in his head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I always took it more as that, that this is all mental. But I'm just, I, I mean, you brought this up earlier, and I'm wondering if maybe there's a world where you can read it like that as kind of a, like, this is the, the consequence here is that he is, like... Because I, I just, like, I watch this, and, like, b- besides being, like, in awe of Katara being great, and obviously Zuko, like... And we'll talk about Zuko and Azula in a second. But, like, Aang is just... I, I've there's so There are moments when Aang is so much better, and this isn't me, like, in my typical, oh, I'm just going to shit on Aang because he's bad at bending, but, like, he is bad in this fight. And I'm, I'm curious if, if there's more explanation there than there was. But... Now let's talk about Zuko, and I am really in awe here of what they were able to do with Zuko in these scenes, because not only does he look just 
infinitely more powerful and just his fire looks bigger, everything looks stronger. There's something so, there's something about this show that we've talked about many times, but I, I have to say again here that it never resorts to power levels. It never resorts to like, oh my God, Zuko is producing 400 times more fire than he used to and like being like so overt about it. But it's, it's all visual. And yeah, there's the one line of like, I thought you had changed and then I have changed. But it's like everything about it is, is shown through pure visual storytelling that, that Zuko is better. He just is better than he used to be. And I, it's just incredible to me. Do you think, like, do you think Zuko is someone that has gotten, I'm not saying soft, you know, over this last season, but, like, do you think this is just something that, like, he's really his nature, he wants to be fighting, especially at this part of his life, and this is just him, like, this is, like, a therapeutic thing for him? I, I think that he... Like he goes through this quote unquote change, which which changes his emotional state. And I think that at the end of the day, bending is I, I I've always read that there is that there is a there's a part of bending that is tied to emotions and that the the amount of power that you can generate is is on some level like some of it is skill, some of it is innate talent, some of it is training, and some of it is emotion. Some of it is is are you in the correct mental state? And I and I, I choose to read that he that this power was always there, but all of Zuko's feelings of sort of the war that was going on at his identity was holding him back and was 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 keeping that fire locked essentially locked inside of him. And once the wall comes down, that he kind of accepts who he is. He it it all like it just wells up and, and then it just comes out in an explosion. But if that was true, then how do you explain later in book three with the dragon episode when he joins their team and really finishes his... Because, I, because my, my thought is that it's not, it's not that, as, that Zuko becomes who he is. It's that he accepts... He, he be, it's, a, it's all about belief, that he in this moment has convinced himself that he is making the, the right choice for himself. And that once he, once he goes back and they, I mean, they even like make it explicit. He talks about like not fueling his fire bending through anger anymore and trying to find a new path. To me, this moment is in here. When we go back to the Iroh scene, you have Iroh as the, it's time for you to put your anger aside. It's time for you to choose good and peace and balance. And then you have Azula saying, no, fight for your honor. Grasp it. Seize the, seize the moment right here. Use all of your emotional power. And to me, it's, it's that this, this well of power is, is, is Zuko tapping into – because I don't like – essentially, I don't think that it's as simple as like, oh, if you're good, you get more power. And if you're bad, you don't get power. Like to me, it's, it's all about personal identity for Zuko. And in this in this moment, Zuko Zuko is confident in his identity. He is sure of who he is. And then later on, he he ends up pushing all of this away and essentially loses all of this power and has to learn a new path eventually. 
That's fair. And I think part of it is because it's finally right in front of him and he has to win this battle to get the honor that he's been trying to Mm -hmm. reclaim. I think it's a bit of desperation and just he has to put his all into this. And Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of like that, that final burst at the end of a race, just kind of putting everything into it and uh, giving it his all. Yeah. And for the first time, other than maybe episode one or episodes one and two, the it the moment it is he is at that precipice. He's at the moment where if he can do this correctly, he has done what he needed to do. And like even throughout like even throughout book one when he's like quote unquote close to capturing Aang, like I never you I don't think you I don't think he ever believed he was actually at the the quote unquote crossroads of his destiny. But to me, I think he he knows that. He knows that this is this is a moment that's going to define him. And I think that he he feels that he's made his choice. Eventually he will end up going the other way. But I don't like we're not there yet. We're we're at the, at this moment he has he has chosen choose chose to to do what he's going to do. Yeah, I think that's fair. So we get to the, the Ang's Ang's choice. Now I want, I want to talk about this for a minute because I'm I'm like very very curious how you guys feel about this because the way that the shot construction works, the way that they they film Ang, it it really feels like Ang realizes that he has to 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 go into the Avatar state. He has to and and by doing that, let Katara go because. Katara is in trouble and he needs to save her because it, there's a, there's a moment where he like looks at Katara, realizes that she's getting overwhelmed by the Dai Li, And it really feels to me like Aang, because of what we know about Aang's character and, and what gets him into action is doing this, not so much for the earth kingdom, but in order to save Katara, which on some level is not actually letting her go. It is choosing Katara, which is, I don't know. There's something weird going on here, I think, with with Aang and how they've constructed this. And maybe I'm going to I'm reading too far into this, but I'm curious what you guys think. No, I think it is very contradictory. I I agree that I've always read this scene as Aang doing this because Katara is the one in trouble. And there was a way they could have framed it where it was more he sees the whole group getting decimated and he knows he needs to save the Earth Kingdom because that is a legitimate reason. But it seems like a very specific person that he's trying to save, and he's letting that person no, go to save let, them. Let, let me let me follow up on that though. Could you then read an idea that maybe he ends up vul- as vulnerable to Azula as he is because of that contradiction? But I think the fact that he's entered the Avatar state means that he has let her go in his mind so because he wouldn't have been able to enter it if he hadn't so i think it's more of a flaw in the writing than an intentional thing yeah because i i I do i read it as a as a flaw here i'm just i'm wondering if maybe like i'm trying to find a way to read something but i I just i i do kind of feel like there's a there's a there's just kind of a problem here i think i think that's what it is Corey, any thoughts here 
To uh, what point? The, the the scene we've been discussing. The the is is Ang letting Katara go in order to save her, which is in essence not letting her go. Yes. So do you think it's just a flaw in in the way it's constructed, or do you think that there's a point to that? Uh, I I think it's there's a point to like half like maybe maybe that is actually a way you could connect it to like the half training where it was like sort of yes but also at the same time sort of no like he was just as conflicted but what i guess what i mean is do you do you think that this that this contradiction is like impl- like implicitly a pr- like a, a something that ang has to like like part of the reason that ang is able to be shot down with lightning is because of this or do you think that it's just it is just an inherent contradiction and there's really no it's just part of the writing i think it's just a part of the writing okay i i agree with that and that's that to me is probably my only like standout problem with the episode or with the finale as a whole is i I, i'm just i think that they there are ways they could have shot this that would have worked but they they chose to shot to shoot it in a manner that makes me a hundred percent convinced that ang is doing this for katara and you can't let Katara go for Katara. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. However, also, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, uh, you know what, Mark, I will loop back now that I'm thinking about the end of this episode and I will give you a point into this little category where I think Zuko and Katara's scene from earlier was actually just as a way to make it even more painful when Zuko chooses Azula. Not only does he betray Iroh, but Katara and like, that side as well so i think maybe that is more so why it was so overtly powerful that scene earlier on mm-hmm. one thing i forgot to mention i just want to i want to quickly jump back to in the in the scene between katara and zuko because we we got kind of sidetracked in the argument but one thing i want to also really commend them for and because they didn't do the thing that they that i thought they would do which is bringing up the spirit water in this moment and obviously the point of it was about Katara trying to find a way to heal to heal Zuko, but giving us a reminder that she has this water with special properties, and they didn't like put it in the previously on. It wasn't in the previously on. She is holding out this 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 thing to remind us that she has this in order to be used later on. Really good foreshadowing, and 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 something that they that they that they do a very good job of like without putting something in with multiple purposes and, and, and using their time wisely. So just a real commending of, of, of the writing there. I would agree. It was um, a very expertly constructed uh, set of foreshadowing. I, I think they did a very good job and it's really indicative of how talented the writing team is for this mm-hmm. show. Yeah. Um, obviously the, the moment with the lightning crashing down, just, just, a, just amazing, you know, chills every time I watch that. The, the 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 combination of the the music swells and then you just hear the lightning and you know what happens and and then you see the the avatar state thing fall away in this like the cosmos world and then you see ang fall there's just a smile on azula's face like like she knows that she just did it like it's everything about this is is is, is awesome yeah it's a really good show <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for that. A um, couple of final 
kind of final the final moments. Um, there's a couple of really iconic shots of of Katara holding Aang here, um, of like her her spiraling up through the the cave, um, and the moment at the very end, the the final moment of of Iroh coming in and and, and you know one last bit of badassery before uh, before being carted off to prison um, is really nice. Um, and then I know like there's the fact that the, just the ending of this episode, I mean, seeing that you're, you're not sure if Aang is, is alive. You're, you're kind of thinking like, would they, they're not obviously not going to do it. This is, this is a pregame of Thrones world. Like they're not going to kill off the avatar here, but like there even is this moment where you're like, what's going to happen. And then as Katara heals him and it's great. And then just that final line and the fact that they end see, book two, they end book two earth with the earth kingdom has fallen and this incredible tracking shot over the entirety of the city that is, you know, under cover of night. And the idea that no one in the city knows what happened, only essentially long Fang, a couple of Dai and Azul know what happened and everyone is going to wait. Maybe not tomorrow, but within a couple of days and realize their city has fallen in a war that they weren't allowed. That's that's how to that's how to end an episode. It's like poetry; it rhymes. <laughs> okay, George Lucas. <laughs> All right. Any any episode discussion you guys want to things you want to talk about before we get into our final thoughts? Because we are you're coming up on an hour and twenty minutes, so that's usually a good place to to wrap things up. Do you like Azula and Zuko's little uh, exchange at the end? Um, yes. I really like that Azula is the one sitting on the throne, even though Zuko is technically the heir. But do you, do you like how Azula, even after the fact, says to him, like, today you restored your honor? Yes. And obviously she doesn't care or mean it, but it makes you think, like, this entire episode she just, like, says the right things. No, but I think she's playing, I think even here she's playing steps ahead because we know that she is going to like tell Ozai that the, that the avatar, that, um, that he killed, that he took down the avatar. And to me, this is actually a very smart moment because it's not like he says to, um, because he like, essentially she's trying to make Zuko feel like he doesn't need to worry about who killed the avatar so that eventually when she lies about it, he's like, well, all right, whatever. There, I, I think that she is right here already sowing the seeds of Zuko's destruction, that she's trying to lull Zuko into a false sense that, that, he, that she cares about him and that she understands what he's going through. And mm-hmm. I think that it's, it's actually very smart on her part. All right. So with that, let's get into our final thoughts and our ratings for this episode. So, um, Corey, why don't you uh, start things off for your final thoughts and your rating for book two, episode 20, The Crossroads. I love this episode so much. Um, the more I even like talk about it and like read through it again, like the more I like it again. And I think this is the best episode Azula ever had and will have. And, like, if Azula was like this 
all series with like more more so flashes of her being crazy. And like I'd probably say Azula is probably the best Avatar villain ever, but unfortunately it's not the case. And we got an even better one in Korra. But I mean, it breaks my heart to see Iroh and Zuko break up. Like <laughs> breaks my heart. It broke my heart then. It breaks my heart rewatching it. And I was like dreading the scene when he makes the decision. But the last it had to have happened. I, as you said, I love the image of Aang falling from the Avatar state and it, the cliffhanger. This is the perfect cliffhanger. This is like the perfect way to lead you into season three. And like, just imagine watching this live and like having to wait for book three to start or, you know, for the, the next season to start. It must have been painful. And like, again, I guess I just not enough things I can say that's more positive about this episode. Like, I have, there's no choice I have. I have to give this a 10 out of 10. All right. On to you, Julia. At the start of this, I was thinking more of a 9.5. But honestly, the the more that we discuss this, the more that I realize just how much I loved this episode and how really my only problem with it was the whole Aang letting go of Katara issue. Although my issues with it going into it were more the follow-up afterwards, but also just the inherent contradiction in that scene. So with that in mind, I'm going to say 9.8. So this is this is a tough one for me, because this episode is it's absolutely phenomenal. It is, I mean, obviously this is above, like, at minimum, I mean, I don't know, minimum. this episode is, is amazing. There are some scenes in this that are, that are up there as some of the best scenes in the entire show, and I'm really struggling with it whether or not to dock it anything for the what Julia just said, that inherent contradiction within Aang here. And the more I think about it, I think I, I'm going to do it, but it's not much. I'm going to give this a 9.9 out of 10. This is, if it wasn't for that one shot, and, to, and it, it pains me to like keep this episode away from a 10 because essentially like two shots, but... The end of the day, a ten is a ten is reserved for perfection. A ten is reserved for the best, and it's not it's not there. It's it's just not. But it's still as close as you can be. This is a nine point nine out of ten. This is absolutely phenomenal, phenomenal television. Um, I cannot recommend this enough. If anyone you know hasn't watched Avatar, just get them to watch Avatar. This scene is amazing. So with that, we are going to wrap things up. Thank you so much to my panel today, Corey and Julia. Always appreciate having you guys on. Um, and we will be back next week to talk about the finale as a whole and the and book two as a whole. We'll have some interesting things to talk about. And then we will power forward into book three. Really happy that we're here, guys. So thank you. Thank you so much. And we are out.